Good evening. We live in a very serious church, don't we? We, um, and, and we're in a serious time of year, Lent. There's no alleluia, there's no gloria. The priests wear purple, it's a sign of mourning. It's just very, very serious. And when you walk into churches, I noticed when I came into church um, tonight, you don't have a lot of the statues here, but as you walk into a lot of churches, you know, you'll see these these saints that are in, you know, agony, they're being, you know, tortured, or, you know, there's just something horrible going on. Um, and you can identify the different saints by the objects that they hold, their icons. Uh, we all know if you see a saint with keys, that means it's St. Peter. If you see a saint holding a sword with a little flame over his head, that's St. Paul. If you see a saint with a grill, a grate, that's St. Lawrence. I'll talk about him in a minute. If you see a saint with a club, that's St. James the Less because he was clubbed to death. And if you see a woman with a wheel, that's St. Barbara because she was somehow killed, tortured and killed on this wheel. And all of these saints you see, they've got their instruments of torture and death with them. Very, very serious, serious thing. And yet St. Paul in his letter to the Philippians said, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say rejoice. Now how does that make any sense? I'd like to talk a little bit about Teresa of Avila. She lived in Spain in the 1500s. Uh, she was sort of a frivolous young girl. She joined the convent, later she admitted, not so much out of a religious vocation as she just didn't want to get married. And so she, her vocation was kind of a, uh, sort of a uh, weak vocation. She tried to pray, but she said that she dreaded her mandatory hour of prayer every day. And she would talk to her priest about it, her confessor, and her confessor said, keep trying, keep trying. And she just found it so boring. When she turned about 40, something happened by the grace of God. Prayer clicked for her. All of a sudden, she couldn't pray enough, she couldn't spend enough time with Jesus, and all kinds of miraculous things would happen. Uh, one of the stories is that she'd be praying in the chapel and she would levitate, and she would yell at God and say, put me down right now. He didn't always comply. Um, one of her sayings was, Lord, save me from sour-faced saints. And she thought that the worst thing you could have was a sour-faced nun. You wanted them to be happy, to radiate the joy that they should have at being followers of Christ. And she had, she had quite a wit. When she, was, uh, when she first joined the Carmelites that, and, uh, and the, was living kind of a social life, she had a big personality. And so people, they didn't have TV, they didn't have radio, and so they'd go to the convent in the evening when they had what they called recreation, and they would visit with Teresa and she'd entertain them. And she was just a really dynamic personality. Uh, one time she was riding on a donkey, this was after her uh, conversion. One time she was riding on a donkey by a rain swollen stream and the donkey slipped and uh, she fell off the donkey and fell into the mud. And she looked up at God and said, 
If this is why, how you treat your friends, no wonder you have so few. So she, she had quite a sharp wit about her and was, uh, and was very insistent that her, the nuns who joined her, she decided that she didn't, she didn't think that the community she was in was really doing what they needed to do. They needed to live in silence and they needed to pray constantly and remove themselves from the world, but with joy, they had to have joy. And so she didn't wanna keep all this happiness to herself, so she ran into this young priest by the name, his religious name was John of the Cross, and she said, come join me. And John said, sure, why not? And so they both were trying to reform the communities that they were with. Well, John's brothers were so enamored with this idea, that's sarcasm, by the way, they were so enamored with the idea that they took him and locked him in a closet. They slipped food under the door so that he could eat, but they generously let him have recreation for a while each day. The recreation consisted of him walking in the middle of a circle of all of his brothers who would whip him. This was a horrible situation, as you can imagine. And what did he do? He wrote some of the most passionate, loving poems ever. The, uh, in fact, in, in Spain to this day, you could study uh, John of the Cross's poems that they are looked at as being, you know, these kind of like what we do when we read Shakespeare. It's old Spanish, so it's kind of like us in old English, but still they study it because uh, the, the poetry, it's so passionate. And here's this guy being beaten as a, as a uh, follow-up. He did escape from the closet. Uh, he tied a bunch of sheets together, slipped out the window and down the wall and escaped. <laughs> Sounds like something out of a movie or something. Anyway, and, uh, and he did. They formed the Discalced Carmelite uh, order as a result of that. And one of the followers of the disc, one of the members that joined the, the female order years later was Teresa of Lisieux, the little flower. And we all think of Teresa as being this, you know, very sweet, loving person. She was kind of a rascal, actually. If you, you know, she would kind of, um, very sharp wit, um, she had to take classes uh, the, the, they didn't really have a school for girls and so she went to get lessons over at this house and she would later kind of mimic the, um, the woman who, uh, the mother of the girl who gave her lessons and I can't do it because it was in, uh, it's in French but she you know, would draw out the things, pronounce everything wrong when she was imitating what this lady would do. Um, the younger sisters did not really like uh, to go to recreation in the evening if Teresa wasn't there because then it was boring because she was so much fun to be with. Um, the, um, after she died, one of the sisters, uh, and this was in her canonization process that the, the sister testified to this, um, the sister was very, a younger sister was very, you know, uh, close to Teresa and she was very broken up that Teresa died so young of tuberculosis in a very painful way. And, um, but she, I'll mention this in a second, but during the process, she was joking about stuff. Um, anyway, so she, uh, people would come and they would say, you know, I, I've got a rosary, will you just touch it to Teresa's body? 
And this nun was sitting there all in tears and all upset. And so she took, at one point, she took this rosary and touched it to Teresa's body. Well, it got tangled up in her fingers and she couldn't get it out. You know, she spent some time trying to get it out. And she said she distinctly heard Teresa's voice saying, I'm not letting go until you smile. And she said, I'm not going to smile because I'm so sad. I don't feel like it. And she heard the voice again saying, then I'm not letting go. And this went on for a little while. And the person standing there, you know, started saying, can I get my rosary back? And the absurdity of the situation finally struck the sister, the nun, and she laughed out loud and she got the rosary loose. So Teresa, you know, even in death, would joke around with, uh, with the sisters. She, um, when she was ill, uh, she, um, a doctor came to see her, and the doctor, you know, and they, they kept giving different diagnoses, you know, of what, you know, what was wrong with her, and she would make fun of them for doing that. And uh, there was, uh, and she, she would be telling jokes, and the, the story of the nuns said that she could just as easily be wrapped in devotion as she could uh, be telling jokes and stuff and split your sides with laughter during recreation. Um, the, um, she would imitate others, you know, in kind of a, a funny, humorous way. Um, the younger sisters were always disappointed when she didn't make it to recreation. Um, during her final illness, uh, the, um, Teresa took it on herself to cheer up all of the rest of the sisters with her sense of humor. Uh, the doctors came and uh, said, oh, she doesn't look that sick. And after the doctor left, she said, well, I'll do better next time. And uh, they were cutting her fingernails and she jokingly, she said, uh, uh, maybe you want to keep those. Somebody might want them one day. And she would do, um, while she's dying, she would do little skits with her drinking glasses. You know, she'd put on a little play with the drinking glasses and things. Uh, she told her uh, sister, who was also the mother of the, 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 miss, the prioress of the community, she said, uh, I want you to give me a kiss and I want it to smack. And so, uh, oh, the, the story about the, the chaplain coming to give her extreme unction and he wouldn't do it because she didn't look sick enough and she said, I'll look sicker next time. Um, the, um, she, while she was ill, she was talking to a priest and she was saying, you know, I'm having terrible temptations of despair and stuff. You know, what do I do? And he basically said, uh, well, don't think about it. That's dangerous. And after he left, she said, well, that wasn't too helpful. Um, she joked with the sisters about being the first one to try out their new cemetery. And she told them um, to uh, put a candle in her hand when they buried her, but don't put those candlesticks. Those are ugly. And so to the very end, she had a really good sense of humor. Um, another saint that we think of as being, you know, very pious and devout, and he was, he was, was Padre Pio. When we think of Padre Pio, we think of a priest saying mass, he's got this stigmata, he's in terrible pain, but he had a quick and sharp wit. Um, he... Uh, there was a, a, a gentleman who was coming to see him and he saw his doctor beforehand and he said, I'm going to go see Padre Pio. He's got the stigmata. And the doctor said, well, 
you know, I, um, he has the stigmata because he spends all his time thinking about the wounds of Christ. Padre Pio wasn't there, but when this guy came to see him, he suggested to this guy, when you go see your doctor again, tell him to think about a bull and see if he grows horns. Um, he said that three things are useless, washing a donkey's head, adding water to the ocean, and preaching to nuns, brothers, and priests. Uh, he said that, uh, oh, there was a priest who gave a very long sermon, and at the end of it, uh, the uh, Padre Pio, uh, he asked Padre Pio what he thought of the sermon, and, the, and Padre Pio's response was, well, if it had gone on much longer, you would have been preaching to yourself. Um, a favorite joke of Padre Pio was, is, um, Jesus was wandering around heaven and he noticed some people there that he didn't really think should be there. So he went to St. Peter and he said, St. Peter, what are these people doing here? And St. Peter said, hey, don't blame me. And so what do you mean? You're in charge. I put you in charge. So I'm sorry, it's your mother. So um, one time somebody came to him and they said that they had only committed light sins. And he said, what, did you weigh them in a pharmacist scale? And then there was another priest who had a hearing aid, and the guy mentioned, said, oh, these things are wonderful. And Padre Pio said, oh, let me see them. So the guy took them out and gave them to Padre Pio, and Padre Pio said, quick, now we can make fun of him. <laughs> the, um, oh, he went to a, uh, there was a, one of the priests went to the, um, see, you're sitting there thinking, I shouldn't be laughing, this is in church. Um, anyway, this priest went to the doctor, he had a terrible, terrible headache, and he went to the doctor, and he came back and he said, oh, the doctor didn't find anything. And Padre Pio said, oh, we could have told you that. There was a favorite joke that um, Padre Pio would tell about a bishop and a farmer on a train. And there are various versions of the story because he told it many times, but this is the, the uh, crux of it. So uh, this farmer gets onto this train and there's a bishop there. And you know, at the time, bishops were very respectable people and they still are, but you know, they, in society, they were kind of very important. So this farmer sits across from him and, and as they start off, well, this horrible, horrible storm, all, all hell breaks loose in the storm, lightning and wind and rain. And the bishop is getting a little bit nervous. And he says, oh my gosh, we're going to hell. And the farmer said, oh, that's okay, I have a round-trip ticket. <laughs> and somebody said to Padre Pio, may you live another 50 years. And Padre Pio's comment was, what did I ever do to you? Um, oh, and they were uh, building a, his tomb, and, uh, and he said, uh, it's kind of smallish, there won't be much air to breathe. There are a lot of jokes that they say you can't translate from Padre Pio because he spoke Napolitano. He was from the area of Naples. And Napolitano, the, evidently these quips don't translate very well, but he, he um, Napolitano actually is not an Italian-based language. This is, to me, I know I'm kind of nerdy, but to me it's kind of interesting. Naples was settled way before there was a Rome, so its language is actually Greek-based, just like Siciliano. And so he spoke Napolitano, and evidently you can't really translate some of his quips. But they said that he was a you know, very witty guy, and that people would, you know, he would joke around with people all the time. He was very serious, of course, when the time was right. 
but um, he, uh, he was you know, very, very serious. There are a number of stories about him and people coming in in short sleeves, shorts, and mini skirts, which he did not think, uh, think well of. Um, so, um, the, uh, the, one of his brothers uh, told him at one point, said, Padre Pio, you suffer so much uh, because you had the imprudence of offering yourself for the whole of humanity. And Padre Pio said, well, a fool was needed for this. Um, he oftentimes, when the birds, he'd be talking to people and the birds would interrupt him, he would tell them to be quiet, and they would. <laughs> hush, bird, hush. And uh, so there are all kinds of stories about uh, Padre Pio and his sense of humor. That, and like I said, we, we, um, you know, we think of him as being very serious, but there's a lot of joy in the saints. Um, I won't tell this one because he, uh, he didn't think much of lawyers. He, he, he must have been confused or something. Um, anyway, so the, um, there was a, a young member of the community who was in the choir, and one of the songs in evening prayer is this hymn to Mary, and in the refrain it says, to heaven I will go to see her one day, and every time this young priest did this, his voice would crack, and so after uh, prayers one night, Padre Pio walked up to him and said, hey, I noticed that when it comes to getting to heaven, you always have to struggle a little, don't you? Um, the, uh, there was somebody that came to uh, the, uh, con the, the monastery, the friary, and uh, they were looking for um, the uh, Holy Father. And she walked up to Padre Pio and said, uh, do you know where the Holy Father is? And he looked at her and he said, yes, he's in Rome. And he walked off. <laughs> Uh, anyway, uh, somebody walked up and said, what do you think I should say to my sister Rose? He said, well, call her a carnation. So um, one of his jokes, Frederick Barbarossa, who was the Holy Roman Emperor in the 12th century, went to a monastery and he said to the superior, I will come back in a year, and if you don't know the answer to three questions, I will destroy your monastery. The first question was, what is the distance between the earth and the moon? The second, what is my worth as an emperor? The third, what am I thinking now? So the superior was desperate, but the cook walked up and said, I got this. And so when Frederick Barbarossa came back, he said, so what's the distance to the moon? And the, uh, the, the uh, cook came up with some enormous number. And the guy said, well, how do you know, Barbarossa said, how do you know that? And he said, well, you measure it and tell me that I'm wrong. The, um, and then he said, oh, the second question was, how much am I worth? And he said, well, Jesus was sold for 30 pieces of silver. You're probably worth 29. And then the third question was, what am I thinking now? And the cook said, you're thinking that you're talking to the, to the prior, but you're actually talking to the cook. So Padre Pio loved to tell jokes. Um, oh, another one of these story, the jokes about the... Um, Jesus in heaven, he's walking around and he sees, sees this guy and he says, this, that guy shouldn't be here. And uh, anyway, so uh, Jesus said, who let you in? And he said, well, Joseph did. And so Jesus went to St. Peter and said, what is this thing with Joseph letting him in? He said, well, he said something about 
you know, that he was a carpenter, and so I was supposed to let him in. And so uh, Jesus said, no, 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 there are no exceptions for carpenters. We're not letting carpenters in. And so Joseph, he told that to Joseph, and Joseph said, okay, Mary, get the kid, let's go. <laughs> I won't tell the one about the drunken caterpillar. He evidently was a lot of fun. You know, I, and like I said, we think of this, we think of him as being very, very serious. Um, okay. Oh, at one point, this uh, lady walked up and she said, oh, I've been feeling bad for two years. What should I do? And he said, well, I've been feeling bad for 70, so grow up. He didn't say that. <laughs> um, didn't think much of doctors. <laughs> um, anyway, so, um, so Padre Pio was a, you know, he had a great sense of humor. And many of the saints had a great sense of humor. I'm sure you've heard the, the story of, of uh, the deacon, St. Lawrence, that he was, uh, uh, he was assisting the Pope at the time, I think it was Pope Fabian, um, in praying the mass in the catacombs. And the Roman soldiers came and captured them and took Fabian away, but they left, they left Lawrence. And Lawrence was called before the magistrate soon. And he said, uh, because he was the deacon, he was in charge of all, he was the treasurer for the, for the diocese. And so uh, the magistrate, thinking that they had huge amounts of wealth, said, I'll give you three days, you bring all the wealth to me, and, I will, um, uh, and I'll, I'll let you go. And so Lawrence went out, he sold everything, gave it to the poor, and then brought the poor in. And he said, here is the wealth of the church. And the magistrate didn't see that as a humorous thing. I, I'm not sure why. So he took Lawrence and he grilled him over a fire. And Lawrence was on one side, and after a while he said, you can turn me over, I'm done on this side. Um, there's another, one of my favorite saints, if you've been here before, I probably mentioned him, Brother Andre Bisset, a um, Holy Cross brother, very simple, uh, wonderful, wonderful person, uneducated. Um, he joined the uh, Holy Cross Fathers uh, they were going to send him away. He did his novitiate and they were going to send him away because he, he had bad health and, and you know, he barely ate. He would eat soup and bread. That was all he could keep down. It was just not very healthy. Anyway, so uh, at the end they said, we're going to let you go. And so the Archbishop of Montreal shows up and Brother Andre throws himself at the feet on the lap of the Archbishop and says, oh, please, this is all I want. I just want to join. And the Archbishop said, anybody that wants in this badly, you've got to find a place for him. And so they accepted him and brother, and he became the doorkeeper. And uh, his joke was, 40 years ago, I joined the order. They showed me the door and I haven't left. And so he was the doorkeeper for 40 years. And there's a story about, he was uh, uh, a little, little background. So. He, uh, he was a doorkeeper, he had this little apartment over the door, and there was a window that he could open and look down into the church, particularly to the chapel uh, of uh, St. Joseph, who he was very devo de devoted to. And uh, anyway, uh, one day he was, uh, you know, his job was to sweep the floors and answer the door and get people stuff. One day he's sweeping the floor in the infirmary, and there's this boy there 
who is there because he's sick. And he walks by and he says, uh, get up and go play. And the boy said, oh, no, brother, I can't do that because I'm sick. He said, no, you're not. Get up and go play. No, no, brother, I can't. I'm sick. Brother, brother uh, Andre said, no, no, you're fine. Go out and play. Put on your clothes and go and play. And the little boy realized that he was fine. He put on his clothes and he went out and played. Well, one of the priests saw him and went, what are you doing out here? You're sick and rushed him back in. And he said, well, I came out because Brother Andre told me to. And, and they throw him in bed and the doctor's examining him and the priest is lecturing Brother Andre. And the, the uh, doctor looks up and says, uh, he's not sick anymore. That was the first of many, many miracles that Brother Andre performed. And he never took any credit for it. He said he was, it, was, it was all St. Joseph and he was merely St. Joseph's lapdog. Um, but people, he developed a reputation. They had to actually build a, um, the parents who were, this was a high school, and the parents who were sending their kids to the high school were objecting that all of these sick people were coming to the high school to get cured by Brother Andre. And so what they would do uh, what they did was they built sort of an extension of a train station down at the bottom of the hill and said, Brother Andre, you go down there and you see all your... We're going to run a high school up here. And so, uh, so anyway, he developed this great reputation. Well, somebody came to see him and said, uh, it was a woman, and she said, my husband is very ill. You know, we have, you know, seven, eight kids. He's our only uh, uh, support. Please, come. he can't come. Please come to the tenement, to our apartment. And, uh, and, and heal him. And so Brother Andre said, yes, I will. Well, Brother Andre never learned to drive, so he had a driver. So the driver drove him in the middle of the night, you know, and he climbed up to the second or third floor and, and prayed for the guy. He would always take oil from the uh, lamp that hung in front of the, uh, the altar of St. Joseph. And so he took the oil and he rubbed it on the guy and prayed for him. And then he left. And as he's leaving, somebody recognized him. And all of a sudden, everyone in the tenement uh, the apartments are all coming out, you know, and the, so he rushes and he, I, I find this scene to be kind of humorous. He rushes to get into the car and they've got people just all over and his driver is sitting there saying, oh, this must have been, this must be like it was when Jesus was, was out and about. And Brother Andre's comment was, well, he could have gotten a better guy to stand in for him. Um, St. John Bosco uh, was, uh, he, uh, he grew up very poor. His father died when he was young. He and his brothers were supporting his mom on a farm. Uh, there was a priest who noticed that uh, John was very devout and was smart and so gave him some books to read. And when his older brother saw him reading these books, he beat him <laughs> because he saw it as an act of betrayal to farm life. And uh, anyway, uh, uh, John would uh, go to mass on Sundays, listen attentively to the sermon and then he would go out and try to tell people who didn't go to Mass what the sermon was all about. Well, he realized they weren't really listening, so he taught himself magic. And so he would do a little magic show, and evidently he was very good because a lot of people would come and stand around, and at the end of it, he would give the sermon. So he would trick people into coming. Um, he, uh, he went to the seminary, and after graduating, he was in Turin, Italy, and this was during the Industrial Revolution, and families were coming in, uh, and you know, dads were abandoning their families. You had all of these street urchins, you know, wandering around, and 
And, uh, and John was very concerned about them. And he said, I need to organize these kids. So what he did was he started having on Sundays on their day off, he started having excursions into the mountains and they would do picnics and games and, and the kids loved it. And this all developed into what became the oratory, which was a sort of a community of these kids. He put in vocational schools to try to help the kids better their lives and things. Anyway, his fellow priests thought he was crazy, literally crazy. And so one day, two of the priests pulled up in front of the building and they had to move their building because the neighbors, they would get upset that all of these street urchins were living near them and so they would get the, the police to you know, send them out. And so they had to move buildings several times. Anyway, so they came to where John was with his boys and they said, John, you have to come with us. Father John, you have to come with us. And he went, okay, that's fine. So they walked down to the carriage and Father Bosco just graciously said, oh, you first, please, you first. They got on, he slammed the door, hit the horse and said, to the asylum, they're waiting for them. <laughs> one, of, uh, one of my favorite uh, saints to tell stories about was Father Joseph Chaminade. You know, we have Chaminade High School here in town. Well, he grew up in a little town in, I guess it would be southwestern uh, France, a very devout family. His brother, he was one of the younger ones. Older brother became a Jesuit and was running a school. Uh, uh, Joseph, uh, he went to school there. You know, he became, a, um, he became a priest and it was right about the time that the French Revolution was bubbling up. And they were down in Southwest France near Bordeaux and they really didn't want anything to do with those Parisians in that French Revolution uh, because they had a fairly economically prosperous area. Things were fine. They didn't want to mess with that. Well, the, the revolutionaries couldn't stand that, and so they sent revolutionary guards down to impose their will on Bordeaux. Um, and what they did was they set up a guillotine in the town square just as a reminder that you were supposed to take them seriously. Well, um, so uh, Father Joseph, by that time, um, he decided that he needed a place to hide. And so he bought a house, put it in his parents' name, and the house had a, a wall around it with one gate. And they hired a very talkative uh, servant, the woman, who was her, part of her job, she cooked and did all that stuff, but she was supposed to answer the gate when, when people came. And so people suspected that Father Joseph was there, and so the, the gendarmes would come and bang on the door, and this lady would go to answer the door and just chat, 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 which would give Father Joseph enough time to hide, and they had all kinds of hiding places. During the, the uh, English uh, deformation, I hate to call it the Reformation, but during the time of Henry VIII and Elizabeth, um, they developed a lot of priest closets, is what they called them. And they were places where the priests could go and hide, and they were very skillfully made. There's one saint, and I'm not remembering his name right, right now, but he was a carpenter, and he built, they still wonder if they found all of these priest hiding places. They, they, they were so well constructed. Anyway, so that was what Father Joseph had in this house, that his parents' house that he bought for them. 
And one time the gendarmes came and they wouldn't put up with this lady. So they came rushing in and he had to hide quickly under a barrel that was in the kitchen. So he's under the barrel and the maid is chit, 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 you know, would you like a glass of wine? And they say, oh yes, we'd love a glass of wine. And so they sit there chatting away, drinking wine on the barrel with Father Joseph underneath. <laughs> and I'm sure later he went, what were you thinking? Anyway, he would wander through town as a tinner, you know, would fix the tin pots and pans that people have. And the gendarmes were, they knew he was out there. They didn't know what he looked like. They didn't know what he was doing, but they would hear rumors that this priest was out there. So there was one time when the, the gendarmes came and, and uh, surprised him and they actually caught him in the street dressed as a tinner and everything. And they come up to him and they say, have you seen Father Shamanad? And he said, oh yes, I think he went down that away. And off they run. Um, another time, he, uh, he knows that they're coming and he goes into a store and there's a guy there that he knows. And the guy says, once again, remember this is France, so there are lots of wine barrels and things. So they put him under a wine barrel and the uh, gendarmes come in and say, have you seen Father Chaminade? And the wine merchant says, why, yes, he's right under that barrel. And they scoffed and they went running off. And so Father Chaminade, you know, the wine merchant lets him out and Father Shamanad says, what, what were you doing? You told him exactly where I was. And the guy said, well, that would be the first time I told the truth. Um, oh, and so he, he was, um, eventually he was captured and exiled and he was sent to Spain. He wasn't killed, but he was sent to Spain. Uh, that was about when Napoleon came into power. And uh, after all of that went away, he, uh, he came back and he started reconverting France by um, having basically small faith communities, uh, which to this day, the, the, um, the uh, Marianists uh, do that. Uh, I, I, I know because when I was in law school, there was a Marianist community and I got to be friends with one of the priests and we'd go over there and it was sort of like a Bible study, but. Not really, but it was, it was very good, it was very good. Now I would like to turn to uh, one of my favorite saints, uh, St. Philip Neri. And St. Philip Neri was, um, he grew up in Florence. He went to Rome and he was born in uh, 1515, I think it was, yeah. And Luther nailed his theses on the door in 1517. So he was about the time of the uh, Protestant deformation. I'll probably get in trouble for saying that. Um, but anyway, he, he, uh, so he grew up at the time when all of this stuff was going on, all these political upheavals and stuff. And he, uh, he spent his time, when he went to Rome, uh, he spent his time playing with the kids in the street, playing soccer and stuff with them. And... Uh, uh, but very devout, and one time he was praying in the catacombs, and he was knocked over by some force, and as he's laying on the floor, a ball of fire enters his mouth and goes down and lodges in his heart and actually expands his heart. When he died, they did an autopsy, and they found that his ribs had been broken, actually, and had expanded. 
And people understood this as being a sign of the intense love that he had for God and that God had for him. Well, St. Philip would have none of that because people were treating him as being special. And so he would walk around Rome with big white, I should have worn some, big white, almost like clown shoes. He would wear his clothes inside out. He would wear, he'd shave half of his beard off because he did not want anyone to take him seriously. He was friends of 15 popes. Um, St. Charles Borromeo was a good friend of his. Uh, Ignatius of Loyola was a good friend. And they think that he introduced St. Francis Xavier to Ignatius Loyola. And so he's very well respected, but he was always making fun of himself because he did not ever want anyone to take him too seriously. Um, oh, another thing he would do is he would carry a pack of brooms around with him when he walked through the streets of Rome, and every once in a while he'd stop and smell them like they were flowers or something. Um, oh, uh, one time they had a, a cardinal come to dinner at, at the, uh, at the uh, community that they founded, and he told one of the young men that he needed to come in with a monkey on his shoulders, and he was supposed to wear his, uh, his hat crooked because uh, he did not want anyone to take them too seriously. Um, and he, he said that when he would go to the Vatican, he had this horrible temptation to walk up to the Swiss guards and to stroke their beards. So one time he was with a bunch of cardinals and he did that. <laughs> They all commented on it. So we, we have these saints who tell us that we should be joyful. They tell us that we should be uh, really you know, enthralled with God. But you might ask, how can I be happy and joyful with all the problems in the world and all the problems in my life? Perhaps you, your spouse, or even worse, a child, have a serious, debilitating, or even deadly illness. Perhaps you have financial problems or you're at risk of losing your job. Perhaps you have a neglectful or even a, um, a physically or emotionally abusive spouse. And the world, of course, is a mess and all the problems that are out there are way too big for us to deal with. I was watching a show the other night on uh, uh, PBS and it was a biologist who was interviewing other biologists and they were talking about whether or not um, the, basically whether or not there was a soul that was independent of the chemistry, the materials and chemistry in your body. And the ones who say that it's not are the, I, th I think the term that they used was mechanists, like a machine. And then the ones who thought that there was a soul were the vitalists. And the interviewer said, what are most biologists today? And without skipping a beat, he said, they're mechanists because they believe that we are the sum total of the elements that make us up. And I think that if we look at ourselves in that way, and I, I fear that so many people in America look at themselves that way, that's depressing. You know, what, what's the purpose of your life if you're just a bunch of chemical things going on? It's just very depressing. 
And no wonder in our, in our world, in our society, so many people are on antidepressants. So many people are depressed because they have so little hope and so little view in the world, or so little view for anything beyond just the immediate. So how are we supposed to be happy in the midst of all of this? And my question to you is, do you pray? And by praying, I mean, you know, asking God to fix all the problems that you have. And if so, then what's your problem? Towards the end of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus tells us, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be opened to them. He talks about how a father, us, parents, will give our children good things. He says, how can you imagine that your father in heaven who is so good would give anything less than the, your, the perfect gift to uh, his children when we who are so wicked, we give so little. We also give good things to our kids. But you might object and ask why your prayers are not being answered. And the simple answer is it's a matter of faith. There's a story in the gospel about Jesus going to Bethsaida and they bring him a blind man and he takes the blind and they say, can you heal him? And he takes the blind man outside of the city and it's kind of an odd thing. There's this two-step healing. He puts spittle in the man's eyes and he says, can you see? And he says, I can see people walking around like trees. Now the question is, how did this blind guy, blind from birth, know what a tree was? But he says, I can't, I see people, but they look like trees walking around. And so Jesus lays his hands on him and then he can see fine. So the question is, why were there two steps? Why did he go out of the town and why were there two steps? And I heard it suggested that the reason for that is because of where they were. In the, um, uh, Bethsaida was a fishing village on the Sea of Galilee. And at one point, uh, Jesus said, woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty deeds done in your midst had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would long ago have repented in sackcloth and ashes. So Bethsaida was a town that lacked faith. And that's why it was suggested in this talk, that's why Jesus had to take him outside. And you, you remember that you know, whenever there was a healing or something, Jesus would say, your faith has saved you or your faith has healed you. God wants us to participate in all of those things that he's doing for us, and he wants us to use faith to do that. So, sometimes God seems to be slow in answering your prayers. There's the old joke about, Lord, let me have patience, but I want it right now. We, um, we get annoyed at, at God's time, but St. Peter told us that for God, a thousand years is like a day, so he has a different time frame than what we have. But he does, you should have faith and trust in God that he will answer your prayers and that should give you joy. There's a uh, saint, or actually she's not a saint, she's a, um, a um, servant of God. So the process now, and this only started, in, started developing in a, you know, the mid 1000s. So before then, people were locally acclaimed as saints. 
but the saint process now is, um, so the local diocese will do an investigation if somebody is thought to be very holy, they'll do an investigation and if they pass that investigation, then there's a whole dossier that is sent up to Rome and at that point they're referred to as a servant of God. Rome will look at the dossier initially and will determine whether or not they exhibited heroic virtue and if they did, then they will be named venerable. And so then you have to look for the miracles and the first miracle you are blessed, the second verified miracle you become a saint or proclaimed a saint. You already were a saint, it's just the proclamation part. So anyway, there is a servant of God by the name of Elizabeth Lesseur. Elizabeth grew up in Paris and she was a very devout person. Um, there, I read that um, she had a, a deeper conversion later, but at least initially, you know, she would go to church and practice her faith and do everything that you were supposed to do. And she married this guy, Felix, who uh, she thought was practicing his faith as well. He became a doctor and it turned out he was a rampant atheist. He even started a newspaper to debunk the Catholic Church. It was just really harsh. And they would have, you know, they didn't have TV and radio and stuff, and so they would have these, these parties, you know, in their houses. And so they would have people over to their house. He was a doctor, he was fairly well off, and so they'd have people over to the house. And Felix at these parties would make fun of his dear wife and for her faith. And Elizabeth would go out during the day and would take food to the poor and would go and visit the hospitals. And at night, Felix and his friends would sit and make fun of her for doing all of that. Well, she had a conversion in um, around the year 1900 where her faith became very, very deep. Um, and she realized that what she needed to do was she needed to pray for Felix's conversion in a very deep, meaningful way. Um, beginning in about 1907, uh, she, um, oh, uh, and all this while she's corresponding with friends and talking about you know, uh, matters of faith with them and their religious beliefs and their practices and things. And Felix had no idea that any of that was going on. So she corresponded with numerous people. Um, her health began to deteriorate. And in 1907, she was really unable to get out. She began receiving visitors and managing household affairs from her, her chaise lounge suffering great pain from cancer. She had surgery and radiation treatment for a tumor, but she ended up dying in 1913. After she died, Felix, she had told her friends, burn all my books, burn all my letters, burn everything. And of course, people don't do that stuff. And so um, Felix happened to find her diary. And in her diary, she predicted that not only would Felix convert, but that he would become a priest. And Felix was furious. He said, this is the most ridiculous thing. I can't believe this. And he decided to go, at the time Lourdes was a big, big deal. And he decided to go down to Lourdes to prove how foolish this was. Well, he got down there and he had a huge conversion. Not only did he convert, but he became a Dominican priest. And he spent the rest of his life promoting the cause of canonization of his wife. Sometimes your prayers will not be answered the way that you 
want them to be. I talk to God every day and I explain to him how things should be and he doesn't always listen. I don't get that. I don't know why that is. Something about him being God and he knows better, I guess, but trust God. Trust that he's going to answer your prayers and that he is going to answer them in the best way possible. You, like Elizabeth, you may not be around to see that, but trust that he will. And in the end, remember, rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, rejoice. God bless.